Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Morning, church. It's good to see all of you today. And uh, with Alex, I agree, I extend to you also those who are uh, visiting for the baby dedication or for whatever reason. Uh, We're glad that you're here, and thank you for coming. It's good having you worship with us today. My name is Michael. I am the lead pastor of this church, and we are going through a series in the Gospel of Luke, and today we're looking at the parable of the wicked tenants. And this is a parable about corrupt leadership. So we know the stories, we know the scandals. Uh, in our society about leaders and institutions. In fact, institutional trust is very low in our society, and for the most part, that distrust is earned, we might say. Um, But God has ordered the world in such a way that leadership is necessary and authority is unavoidable. Uh, According to Scripture, godly leadership is a blessing. We need it to flourish It lifts us up and points us to God when it is godly leadership. Let me read you a scripture. This is from 2 Samuel 23. Verses 3 and 4 says this. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So we see in this text that godly leadership is a blessing to people. And godly leadership is defined, we see two things here. One is ruling justly, and two, ruling in the fear of God. And so what that would indicate is that ruling justly means it's impartial, it is just. And ruling in the fear of God, meaning that God is the measure of all things, and God's law is the standard that we judge by. By contrast, corrupt leadership is a curse. And so corrupt leaders, they draw people to themselves, and they do so often in search of fame or popularity or just uh, for raw power. And so um, we see an example of this in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34. I'll read you a text here. Ezekiel 34, this is a prophecy against uh, Israel's shepherds. And it says, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Now, the text goes on, Ezekiel 34 is pretty famous. Uh, it's, a, it's a lengthy passage, which is a denunciation of the corrupt un- and ungodly leadership of Israel. But what we see here is that um, they, some people may 
they're, they're shepherds in the, the nation so that they are appointed within the nation of Israel as leaders and as shepherds. And so in our day, they might acknowledge Jesus as of the Messiah. They may acknowledge Christ, but they teach human wisdom in the place of God's law, and that is unjust. And so in their teaching, man is the measure of all things, human wisdom, human experience, human emotions. And the result, as we saw in Ezekiel 34, the sheep are left without food and they are left without protection. So it's a vulnerability. The sheep are starving and they're vulnerable. And Ezekiel 34 says, the Lord is against them. Pretty strong words. Whoops. Pretty strong words there. The Lord is against those shepherds. And oftentimes, the sheep don't know the difference. They're not able to distinguish between a true shepherd or a false shepherd. And a lot of times, it's not even a false shepherd, like a a blatantly false teacher. It might be just someone who is ignorant or somebody who is foolish, but is nevertheless a true shepherd. That, That happens as well. But the result is that the faithful sheep are led astray. And that's that's what's on God's heart. God cares about that. Now, in our day, it's different because in, in, in Israel's time, they had particular offices that were um, occupied by leaders. You had um, priests, you had those that God would raise up as prophets, you had the kingship, so you had very specific offices, but in our day, it's not just official church leaders that can be in these positions. A lot of times, it can be an independent online influencer, Right? So we have this whole influencer class of Christians in the modern day where any 15-year-old with a TikTok and an iPhone can tell the world who God is and what God thinks and what God likes and what God doesn't like. Now, there may be some good ones out there, but uh, for the most part, they lack biblical knowledge and the wisdom and skill and humility necessary to be teachers. And yet, they are performing the function of teachers. They're doing so with the platform, often with lots of Christians subscribing to and liking and and, uh, receiving their teaching as though it is an authoritative teaching. Some of them will do so claiming that they're holding leaders accountable, but you've got to ask, who are they holding, like what's the standard? What are they holding leaders accountable to? They'll say, well, I'm holding the church leaders accountable, so i got to speak out. Well, what are you holding these church leaders accountable to? And what is your authority? Why, why, why would you be the one that is qualified to hold these leaders accountable? Those are, those are all valid questions. And oftentimes, the accountability that they're applying is their own subjective human standard of right and wrong. And ironically, because they are independent, these online influencers are themselves unaccountable. They don't have, there's no one that they answer to. Let me read you a text from James chapter 3, verse 1, which speaks of this. James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, you might add, not many of you should become influencers, or we could go on and say bloggers or whatever. You know, if, you're, if, if somebody is going online and they're teaching, some, they're, they're proclaiming to teach about the Christian faith and they're saying, this is what the Bible teaches, here's a verse, here's some text of scripture, here's some theological point, and they're doing so in a public forum, they're doing what James warns people that not many people should do. Not many should take it upon themselves to be public teachers because doing so invites 
a greater strictness in judgment. Now, that could be judgment in the eyes of fellow human beings, which is true, but I think it also implies a greater judgment from God. So it is a, it is a sober thing to go onto Facebook and to say, you know, here's what I think about this verse. I want to I share my thoughts on this. That, that is something to be done with some caution. So where we are here in Luke's gospel is we're in the final week of Jesus' life before his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. And there's this problem that's brewing in his ministry. There's a tension, a growing tension between Jesus and the Jewish leadership class. And in uh, chapters 19 and 20, they're identified as Pharisees, uh, scribes, the chief priests, uh, principal men. There's several different references as this as this tension between them is all playing out. But the problem that they have with Jesus is that the people are enamored with Jesus. They're receptive to him. They're open. And Jesus is drawing followers away from them and to himself, which that's a good thing that Jesus would do that because Jesus is the perfect Messiah. We would want people to follow Christ. And the shepherds, the Jewish leadership class should have recognized the Messiah and should have encouraged it, which is what John the Baptist did. You remember whenever, uh, whenever people came to John the Baptist and said, hey, all these people are following Jesus. And he says, like, he must increase, I must decrease. That's, that's the heart of a leader. A, a true shepherd is like, hey, it's all about Christ. Let's point all the people to Christ. Jesus is what matters. And my leadership merely is something that should propel people and point people towards Christ. But what's happening here is that the people were receptive to Jesus. They were open to his message. There was some interest in what he was teaching. If you remember um, a couple weeks ago, there was, well, the text that Wade preached, um, we, we didn't cover the text in his sermon, but that was the text where they were shouting Hosanna at the triumphal entry. He had a lot of people that are gathering around Jesus, and they're shouting out Hosanna and laying down palm branches before Jesus. And then throughout the week, um, this, this Passion Week of Christ leading up to his arrest, lots of people are interested. They're, they're tuning in. They want to hear what he has to say. They're hanging on his words, one of, the, one of the verses says. So he's drawing these large crowds, and this provoked the Jewish leaders to jealousy because they wanted the people's loyalty all to themselves, and therefore they opposed Jesus. And that's what the parable of the wicked tenants is about. Jesus is telling this parable against those people. And we'll see that at the very end uh, whenever Luke says it explicitly. So let's dig in. We're in Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. And we're going to pick it up in verse 9. Luke chapter 20, verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Let's pause here for a second. The vineyard is a metaphor for uh, the people of God. 
So the, the vineyard is the nation of Israel, Judah and Israel both, but broadly speaking, this refers to the people of God, which is the Jewish people, the people of the covenant. The tenants, who are they? The tenants are the ones who are put in charge of the vineyard, right? So the tenants would be the ones who are, they represent the Jewish leadership class in Israel at the time of Jesus' life and ministry. So they were put in charge of leading God's people. So then who are the servants that were sent from the owner to the vineyard while the owner is away? The servants represent the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. So we have, you know, the prototypical prophet would be Elijah, but you also have Jeremiah, Ezekiel, which we read from before where Ezekiel was denouncing the shepherds. He's like a servant saying, hey, return to the covenant, be faithful to God. So we have the servants. These are the prophets who are showing up at the vineyard to the people of God, and they're speaking about God's will, calling them to obey God. So the servants are the Old Testament prophets delivering messages of warning. And every time we see in this parable that a servant shows up, the tenants, the leadership class, they mistreat the servants. So the leaders always mistreated the prophets. And yet, the owner of the vineyard is patient and merciful. Then the owner of the vineyard said, so the owner of the vineyard, that would be God, right? What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Now that language might ring in your ear because this is how Jesus himself is described in the Gospels. In fact, at Jesus' baptism, if you are familiar with that story where Jesus was baptized and then a voice came from heaven, do you remember what that voice said? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That was the voice from heaven that spoke that. So clearly, this is an allusion to Jesus Christ himself. So Jesus has inserted himself into this parable. And he's saying he is the beloved son. So this is, Jesus is not just another prophet. He's not just another servant. He is the beloved son. He is utterly unique. He is God in human flesh. He has come to visit his people. And perhaps they will respect him. That's a reference to God's patience and grace. God has continually again and again sent servants and every time that seems the servant is treated worse than the one before. And so he gets to the end and think, he's exasperated and the, and, the, and the owner says, I'll send my son. They'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw him, the son, they said to, the, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What is the inheritance? Well, the inheritance, it's the vineyard. So if the owner is away and they kill the son, then they're like, hey, this vineyard is ours, which means control of the people of God belongs to us. And that's what they were after. So you've got to remember, Jesus is telling this parable against the religious leaders who want to control God's people and the son, being the heir of the, of the estate, is the rightful ruler of the vineyard. He's the one who should be put in charge. So by killing the son, they eliminate God from the picture. They eliminate the owner, and they have the vineyard all to themselves, which is the people. 
And so if the Jewish leaders can disregard God and his word, then they can manipulate the religious institutions however they want. And that's what Jesus is indicating here. He's telling the parable against the leadership, saying, okay, like, you've, you've, you've always persecuted the prophets who God sent to you before. And now that the son has come, you're going to do the same thing to him. And this is a bit of a cryptic, veiled prediction of his own death. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. We want to know who the others are. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This cornerstone language, you, uh, we sing a song called Cornerstone. You might know the reference, but the, the, the reference to the cornerstone, it's a, it's a messianic reference. It's in Psalm 118. Um, so it's, 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 it's an Old Testament reference to the Messiah. And what he's saying is Jesus making plainer, God is going to judge them for the evil that they have committed and that they plan to commit. And then the result of that judgment is he's going to take the vineyard away from them and give it to somebody else. So the vineyard will be taken away from the Jewish leader class and given to those who are loyal to the beloved son. So what's, what's happened in in the New Testament time, is this Jewish establishment, the leadership class, had become so corrupt that they rejected and murdered their own Messiah. And even after he rose from the dead, they still did not repent, and they still did not believe the gospel. Therefore, God took the vineyard away from them, away from the Jewish tenants, and he gave it to those who were loyal to the beloved son. Who are they? That's the church, right? That's us. Those who are loyal to the son. The church is the newly constituted people of God, and it is comprised of both faithful Jews and Gentiles, which is probably most or all of us that are ethnically, we're not descended from the Jewish people, so most or all of us are Gentiles, but we are grafted into the people of God. We, are, we belong to the people of God. The vineyard is given to us. So now we are brought together into this vineyard on the basis of faith in Christ. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Those who reject Christ, they stumble over the stone and they break against the stone. But those who receive Christ, the beloved son, are welcomed into the vineyard. That's the church. Now, one more verse. This is actually the first verse of the next section, and we'll, we'll look at this next week. But there's something, there's a little detail in this verse that I want us to make sure we see. The next verse, the scribes and the chief priests, there's a Jewish leadership class, sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. They were about to fulfill the prediction Jesus made within this parable. They wanted to lay hands on him right then. They wanted to kill him right then. For they've perceived that he had told this parable against them. So they knew Jesus was talking to them. And it made them so angry that they wanted to execute him right there on the spot, but they didn't. Why? They feared the people. So in a sense, faithful people 
were an accountability to the leader, the faithless leader. The people feared God and, or excuse me, the people, the people were loyal to Jesus or at least interested in Jesus and the leaders feared the people. And so those people, there was an accountability there that, that prevented them from carrying out their plan at that moment. So this is key. The point of the parable is that the Jewish leaders were leading people away from Jesus. They wanted the vineyard for themselves. They wanted power. They wanted to control people with religion. And that's a powerful way to control people. If you can get people to do what you want with the authority of thus says the Lord. That's a powerful way to manipulate people. And the only thing that stopped them from doing so was Jesus' popularity with those very people. So that's the parable. It's relevant for us because what was happening there is a perennial issue. This will always happen. People will always try to control others with religion. And that is true even within Christianity because there will always be false teachers, false shepherds, or true teachers and true shepherds that are foolish or mistaken. That can happen too. But regardless, this is always going to be a temptation. And this being the case, Christians, we can equip, be equipped with Scripture and with biblical wisdom to discern teachers. And that's what I want to, I want to talk about that. So in a fallen world, corrupt leadership, that's inevitable, right? It's a fallen world. We're sinful. Every leader is sinful. Some leaders are straight up corrupt and godless and pagan. They're wolves. Other leaders are incompetent or experienced. They may just be foolish, but they're not, they're not intentionally doing wicked things. Nevertheless, this is a reality in a fallen world. And there are lots of leaders and influencers who are eager to tell Christians what to think, what to believe, how to behave. Some of them are downright heretical. Mark and avoid. Some of them are like that. Some of them are just incompetent. They don't know what they're talking about or they're mistaken. So there's a lot of doctrinal issues where Christians of good faith and a good conscience may disagree and do so with sincere and legitimate arguments from Scripture and they land in different places. So that's, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about genuine teachers who are trying to instruct the people of God and you have people that arrive at different conclusions, but both are faithfully readings of the text, but, you know, in, in, our, in, our, in our fallenness, in our ignorance, we're not able to always see exactly what's true. So that, that can happen. We can make mistakes as Christians, right? But there's always going to be also false teachers. And a lot of times, is it somebody who's ignorant? Is it, or is it somebody who is downright heretical? Is it somebody who is harmful? Is it a wolf that's devouring the sheep? We have to have some discernment to be able to distinguish that. So there's always going to be, almost always, I don't know if I could say this definitively forever, but it seems to me as though there's always going to be more false prophets than true prophets in the world. G.K. Chesterton said, there's a lot of ways to fall down, but only one way to stand up straight. And he's right about that. We stand up straight by the word of God. We walk by faith. We know and love and obey Jesus as Lord over all. Jesus Christ and his word is the plumb line that we live by. Nevertheless, we can fall by ignorance. We can fall by being deceived. We can fall by willful disobedience. We can fall by temptation of the devil. And that is true of the leaders as well. 
We can fall by listening to the wrong voices, by following unfaithful leaders, by listening to books or by, uh, by listening to podcasts or reading books and blogs of, of leaders and influencers that are unfaithful. And we have a choice to make in who we listen to. We have more choice than ever before in human history. We have more choice, more opportunity, more resources available. And so there's a need to be discerning in the, in the resources we, we use. In the ancient world, they didn't have any say over who their leaders were. But today we do. Even in the church, we have, we have a voice in that. But there's so much corruption in modern Christianity, it's a matter of stewarding wisely the choices before us who we allow to influence us. We're deluged with so much content, so much information. And everything, every, every, every book you read or every, every show you watch or every podcast you listen to or every blog you read, it's like you're, you're giving some degree of authority in your life and influence in your life because you're, you're allowing them to capture your attention. And so that's something we can steward. So here's the thing. Who you allow to lead you and who you allow to shape you spiritually it's one of the most important decisions that you'll make. It's a very important decision. Like, there are a lot of decisions we make in life. I imagine like, if you were to take the decision of who you marry and what retirement plan you choose, what career path you choose, uh, what neighborhood you live in, it's like we give a lot of attention to those kind of decisions. But in many cases, the decision of who we allow to have spiritual authority in our lives and who we allow to influence us spiritually is, is sort of a, we, we almost, we don't really give it much thought at all. There's not a lot of discernment that goes into that. Now, you might put more thought into the church that you attend, but then there's, there's a lot of things that you might give your attention to that you haven't discerned very well at all. And the thing is, God doesn't give us perfect leaders. If he wanted to, he could have appointed angels to come and be our shepherds and our pastors and our leaders, right? But that, that wasn't God's plan. God's design is for there to be order and structure in the world, real authority in the world, but for that authority to be exercised through fallen people. So to help us discern our, who leads us and influences us better, I want, to, I want to give you some practical questions that you can ask. I got five of them. Five question, practical questions you can ask to help you discern the, the, the content that you consume or the, the spiritual leadership or influence in your life, okay? So here's, uh, here's the first question. Does this leader's teaching clearly derive from Scripture? Does this leader's teaching clearly derive from Scripture? Now, to answer this question, you have to know Scripture, don't you? If you don't know Scripture, then you're not going to be able to discern whether or not a teacher who's teaching you is deriving their teaching from Scripture. And just here's a pro tip. Just because they quote a Bible verse doesn't mean that their teaching is biblical. Every heretic has his verse, as the saying goes. So, uh, now, as we go through these, I'll, I'll give you some help as to what you can do about that if you're... If you're, not, if you're not very bi biblically knowledgeable. But I'll just say this. Like James 3, I read that text earlier. 
Hebrews 13 um, is, is another text which talks about obeying your leaders and submitting to them for they will give an account to you or account to God for you. So that, that text implies that the, that the local church should be the primary spiritual authority, this primary spiritual influence in your life. And this is my last point also, but I'll just mention it here. And it, part of that is because uh, the leaders are embodied. There are human beings that you can talk to. We're here in, in person. You can, I'll be in the cafe. You can talk to me afterwards. Uh, most of you know Eric Tuff and Sam as, as the other elder in this church. Embodied people that you know them and they know you and they are giving an account for you. And I can tell you this, like I, this is one of the scariest things. And if there's anything that would ever make me think, man, I got to quit this job. It is knowing that I will give an account to God for what I teach here. That, that is... I, I know God's gracious with me, but that's, that's a terrifying thing, and it's a sobering thing because what people in this church believe, I know that I have a very direct and very authoritative role to play in what people in this church believe and how they live. And if there's error in me, you know, corruption in the pulpit is going to lead to compromise in the pew. That happens. And so that's a sobering thing. So if you don't know... Scripture very well, you do have human beings that you can talk to. You can talk to me. If you, you, know, you can talk to Eric. We are here for you. Like our, 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 our calling is to shepherd this flock. So I'm going to, there will be things that I get wrong. You know, I, and I, I trust God's grace in that, but there are, there are things that I will get wrong. But there is a, there is a, uh, there's a commitment to Scripture that is part of our church community, and that produces disciples who can be Bereans, meaning that they can, they can test the Scriptures to see if what is said is true, and then on the whole, that can, it's like a rising tide will lift all boats. We can all grow in our biblical knowledge together, and that is good, and it's a good and healthy thing for us. But I, I say this because I take these seriously, and so because of that, you can just have the freedom to tune out a lot of the other influences that you might want to tune into. You know, for all of church history until, I don't know, 1998 or something, people had their local church and a cassette ministry. I guess that started back in the 80s. You could have a cassette ministry. I've got some actual cassette tapes where I would, you know, call the hotline and give them a number over the phone and they would mail me a little little wallet of cassette tapes of, you know, preachers that I liked. You can do that. But, but it's like we just, it's easy to, to, to forget just how novel our modern situation is where we have so much influence and that there's some, in some ways that's a good thing, but it's, it's something we need to discern because it's a mixed blessing. In a lot of ways, it's a bad thing. If I would have my druthers, it would be that every church would have their local pastor, their local elders who are accountable, they fear God, and they know that they're accountable for what they teach, and that's, that's the content of that church and maybe some books that they would, you know, that they would get. But I think we're, we're, we're so deluged with content, and so we just have to be really discerning. And I want you to know, because you have elders that take very seriously our calling, and we know we'll give an account to God for what we teach, Feel free to tune out a lot of the other resources. Or if there's a resource you're interested in and you're like, I don't know if this is solid or not, let us know. We'll vet it for you. And if, if I don't have a chance to read it or vet it myself, I know lots of people. I'm well-connected. And I can find somebody that I trust that can give us some insight. But we're, we're happy to do that. But 
point being, you don't have to watch or read or listen to every influencer that demands your attention. You can ignore them. But as a rule, the degree to which a leader loves the Jesus of the Bible, that's going to correspond to how trustworthy he is. Because the scripture is our standard. The scripture is our standard. All right, here's a second question. Does this leader define terms carefully and specifically? Or is he more vague, ambiguous, subjective? And this is important because there's a whole lot that can be smuggled in under, uh, with, with, with ambiguity. We've circled around this topic before, so I won't, I won't belabor this too much, but the word winsome, that's become sort of a universal Christian standard, right? Universal Christian standard, but what does it mean? A lot of times if somebody says, you know that you should speak more winsomely, well, what does that mean? It's, it's vague. It's subjective. It, it, you don't really know what it is, and oftentimes it is... It is it is the, the person saying it, it is their subjective understanding of what is or is not Christ-like that is driving their concern for the way that somebody else speaks. But hardly ever does somebody make a rational biblical argument and can they say something specific? It's something vague. It's an impression. It's a feeling they have. Ah, I didn't really like that. Or you should be winsome. And, and the vagueness is, is the problem. So here's another. How often have you felt pressured to violate your conscience under, uh, because somebody said, well, if you do, this is what you do if you love your neighbor. Again, that's a Bible. You know, if you know, if you know the Bible, you know, love your neighbor, you know, that's, that's in the Bible in several places. So if somebody says, well, you know, do X, Y, and Z because that's what you do if you love your neighbor. Well, okay, that's, that sounds biblical, but can you define what that means and why the course of action you're re recommending to me is the proper application of loving my neighbor? That's not being legalistic or that's not being defensive or hard-hearted to ask that question because that's a manipulative, it can be, that can be a manipulative way to pressure people into doing things that violates their conscience. The most you know, a big one over the last few years was like pushing the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, on people who they had some reasonable objections to it, but they said, well, if you love your neighbor, this is what you'll do. Not necessarily, because that's a vague thing. What, what does love your neighbor actually mean? It's, it's used as a bludgeon that is, that is meant to force people to do things that they disagree with. But the thing is, is that we're not in the dark about what love your neighbor means. Like the Bible uses that language and the Bible defines it for us. Love your neighbor is defined in the Bible. If you want to know where it is, it's the second table of the Ten Commandments. That's how you love your neighbor. So how do you love your neighbor? Well, you don't kill him, for starters. <laughs> you don't lie to them or deceive them. You don't steal from them. You don't commit adultery with your neighbor. And each one of those, there's a lot of other case law that fleshes it out more fully. You don't covet your neighbor's belongings. Like the Bible defines for us what it means to love your neighbor. And so somebody says, do this or that because it's love your neighbor. It's like, well, is that your vague impression of what love means? Or can you show me with an explicit text of scripture how what you're recommending corresponds to loving my neighbor? Because a lot of times what people say is loving their neighbor is actually the opposite. 
It's like love your neighbor by being complicit in a lie that they're believing and don't confront that lie. Or go along with that lie, even affirm that lie because affirming that lie is what you do to love your neighbor. No, it's not. That's how you hate your neighbor. So if you say love your neighbor and do this or that, and then the action that you take is actually forbidden in Scripture, then you're now hating your neighbor. So vagueness, we have to discern the vagueness. Okay, here's the third one. How does this teaching line up with the historic beliefs of the church? Or to put it another way, is this teaching historically novel? So obviously church history isn't perfect, but here's another quote from G.K. Chesterton. He talked about the democracy of the dead, meaning that dead people, dead Christians in church history should have a vote in how we see things because the history of the church can inform us in the present. So if you're, let's say your great-grandparents were Christians, what would they think about whatever issue that is currently being debated as something that is up for grabs? Here's an example. Today is, uh, this is, there's 31 days in May, right? So today's May 21st. So in 10 days, well, I guess 11 days, on June 1st, Gay Pride Month will be in full swing. Full swing and... That means all the propaganda, the LGBTQ propaganda, will be in full swing. So this is a good opportunity for Christians to be discerning and also be prayerful and to have our, because we'll be told by lots of people, well, if you have a a gay person or a trans person that you care about, a friend or family member, you should love your neighbor and go along with their lifestyle choice or go along and use the pronoun that they prefer. That's how you love your neighbor. Well, okay, here's another test. What would my great-grandparents think about that, what you're saying? Well, first of all, they would have not the slightest clue what anybody's even talking about. They'd be like, what in the world are you? Pronoun, like, there's, there's male and female pronouns, that's it. I mean, it would be, it would be like a bizarre thing. They would, they would be like completely uh, flummoxed <laughs> by the fact that this is even a hot topic. But if this is something, something that is... Has not even been up for debate at all within the Christian church from, you know, the, the very beginning up through the time of Christ and then until about three, four years ago. It's like, are we really willing to cast aside the witness of the historic church and of the Christian tradition going back into the Old Testament times because of something that really is historically novel? So we don't have to scour the Middle Ages of church history to recognize how insane some of the things are now that we're being asked to go along with. But we can, but we're, we're, you're going to be hearing this. I'm saying this now because you're going to be hearing this and you've got a whole month of it that you should be prepared to hear. And you'll hear it from Christians, especially if you're online and you pay attention to what Christians of various traditions say. There's going to be pressure. And you might even be shamed as hateful for not going along and say that you don't love your neighbor if you don't go along. And that's that's something that we can discern. We can be prepared in advance. Like, well, I'm giving, you, I'm giving you the ways to be prepared to discern the messaging that we're hearing from influencers. All right, here's number four. Does this teaching make you feel more comfortable with the world, or does it make you feel like you can fit in better with the world? So nobody wants to suffer, and if anybody can, they're going to avoid suffering if they can, and that's our desire to avoid pain is an opportunity for the devil to tempt us to take a shortcut. 
So if, if believing what Christians have always believed gets you in trouble with the world, then wouldn't you want to avoid that? A lot of us think, yeah, I definitely want to avoid that. So let's say a Christian influencer comes along and want to make a name for himself or herself, and they come along and they start to question something that is a pain point and a point of, of affliction for Christians. And they say, well, did God really say? And they've got, you know what, uh, here's a, they might dazzle you, dazzle you and dazzle the audience with a Hebrew or Greek word that they just Googled 30 seconds ago. So it feels and sounds more authentic. When really they have no training, they have no license or right to be speaking that way, but they, they, they know how to communicate in a, in a powerful way that influences people. So we, our desire to avoid pain and, and to avoid controversy and suffering, we might be tempted to go along with something that they say. All right, here's the last one. How does this teaching affect you emotionally? How does this teaching affect you emotionally? How are your desires and affections moved by the thing that you're hearing? Now, to, to answer this question, you need to be honest with yourself. And you have to discern your own feelings and discern your own incentives. There are things that are true. There are things that aren't true. And then there are things that we want to be true. And we can find a plausible path to believe them but aren't true, right? Because... Human nature is to find the path of least resistance. And if we can find a way to be able to claim I'm a Christian, I'm a conservative Bible-believing Christian, and yet still believe this lie because there's a loophole, a lot of times we'll take it. Because that loophole is probably the thing that eases friction and conflict and pain, suffering in our life. We'll take that. So you have to discern your emotional response. Because there are things, if you, if you know there's something that is painful or difficult to believe, Notice that. Discern your emotional response when you encounter something that challenges that or affirms that. Because you might hear something that would tempt you to affirm a lie because it makes life easier. Messages that move us emotionally, they train our affections to teach us what's good and normal right at the intuitive level. So you might have a cognitive propositional outline, an ethical argument for why one thing is true but at the emotional level, deep down, you really wish the opposite were true. And that is where your desires and affections pull you until eventually your mind caves in and you give in. So pay attention to what makes you laugh. Laughter is a spontaneous eruption in delight. So if you laugh at something, that thing, that's a good feeling. It's an endorphin rush, right? So if you laugh at something, whatever it was that triggered the laughter is going to have some kind of positive association in your soul. You've got to discern that. That's why parents need to be discerning with what entertains their kids. It trains the child's affections. Kids are laughing all the time at shows they watch. What are they laughing at? Are they laughing at sin? Are they laughing at evil? We, we, th these are intuitive things. That's why... What works for a child is going to be very different than the rational argumentation you can make with an adult. We're not computers. That's the point. We're, we're, we're emotional beings, and that's a good thing. God made us that way, but we're, we're not just pure, you know, reasonable. We'll, we want to think we are. We want to think, I am totally rational. This is a completely biblical argument when, in fact, we're fil filled with contradictions and nonsense that we want to tell ourselves is biblical and rational. That's how you have conservative Bible-believing Christians affirming nonsense. 
because they want to be part of the crowd that they think is more respectable. All right, I want to give you one final word as we conclude here. Jesus became one of us, right? He became a human fully, flesh and blood. He was not a disembodied message. Announced from the sky, he became a real human. And so the best communication, the best messaging, the best influence is going to be face-to-face. It's going to be eye-to-eye with somebody that you know. You can shake their hand. You can meet them and have a conversation with them. And communication like that, it's up close and personal, allows you to account for the whole person. You can discern subtleties in body language. You can, you can see what stumps that person, what makes them think, where do they have a ready answer, what makes them passionate. You can, those are the kind of things that is the normative way of being influenced, not by disembodied, curated messages on TikTok or YouTube, but by individuals. And in some measure, even just the preaching event is like that because it is here in person with people and I can talk to you afterwards. And you can, you know, most of y'all know me. A good number of you have been in my house, I've been in your house. So it's like there's a way we know each other and that is a good way because you're, you're able to detect my flaws and blind spots. You know Eric's flaws and blind spots. You know what fires me up. You know what areas of, of my own theology I'm not as well versed in. And that can, that's, that's helpful because you're talking to a real human, and that's the way it's always been. That's the way God has designed us. So it's good whenever we can, we need to, we need to have some discretion with disembodied communication. Like we see in a blog or it's like the printed text of a fool looks exactly the same as a printed text of a genius. There's no way to tell the difference. And so like when you talk to a person, you're able to discern more. And Christ, he came to earth in flesh and blood. That's how he presented himself to us. He did not announce from the sky, this is, hey guys, uh, I, I did this thing up in heaven, don't worry about it, uh, I've redeemed you, believe in me and move on. No, he came to earth and became one of us. He was an enfleshed message. He was a leader that, was, that we're able to see and, taste, see and touch and, and, and shake his hand and know him. And we can't do that. We know him by faith. But if you read the, the beginning of 1 John, he talks about, it's like, we knew him, we saw him, we touched him, we felt him, we heard his voice. He is giving us witness to something that he himself uh, was able to experience. And that is the testimony that we receive. We believe it. So no leader is perfect. The best, God appointed leaders in the church, and this is the way we work, but the best leaders will do their best to remind you of their own weaknesses and flaws because it's helpful for you so that you know not to put your hope in a human leader, but to only put your hope in the ultimate leader, Jesus Christ, who is perfect. He's our Savior, our Lord, and he's our shepherd and leader. So that's your exhortation for today, and I need to stop because we've got to dedicate babies. All right, let's pray. (laughs) Thank you, Lord Jesus, that uh, you... You taught this parable, and thank you, God, that in your wisdom, you've ordered the world in such a way that we are taught by and led by, influenced by human leaders that are flawed. And so I pray, Lord, that you will give us the wisdom and the discernment to be able to, to, to learn and to tune out what we should and to receive what we should, and help us to apply these, these uh, practical questions in order to uh, be more just to be more discerning so that we can avoid being deceived. And so we thank you, Jesus. Um, Again, I pray uh, for the babies that we're going to dedicate in their families and ask you to bless the communion time and the time of baby dedication as well. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. 
For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.